Good morning. Welcome. It's so good to see all of you here today. And it's a wonderful day to be here at Trinity Grace Church. We are beginning a new series today through the book of Colossians. And I'm so excited. We're doing something that I don't think we've actually ever done before as a church, which is we've invited all of our life groups to sort of sync up with us during this series and to walk through uh, this letter to the Colossians together. And so uh, we've created a Colossians groups guide that sort of pulls out some key themes, discussion questions for the passage each week, uh, suggested practices and additional resources to sort of engage with as a group. And not only, not only are a bunch of our ongoing life groups uh, going to be walking through Colossians in October and November, but we also have five uh, new eight-week groups that are just going to run during this series, Colossians groups, we're calling them, and those begin this week as well, uh, and they'll be following through uh, this, uh, this journey with us also. We want our heart as a community is not just to study this letter, but to allow it to shape our thoughts, our practices, our habits together as a community this fall. So we're really, really excited. And I want to encourage you, if you're not already in a group, I think, I know this is going to sound audacious, but I think I can genuinely say there has literally never been a better time than right now to try one. So if you've been waiting, if you've been around for uh, some time and for whatever reason, it's felt like there's been a hurdle there to try a group, you've been waiting for the perfect time, you've found it. This is the perfect time this week. So uh, you can go to tgcparkslope.com slash Colossians, and there you can see all of our ongoing life groups uh, that are available. You can see those Colossians groups uh, that are going to be running just for the next five weeks. Uh, you can sort of uh, see the guide that, uh, where we have the resources we're providing for uh, the study. And so... Uh, you can do it yourself if you want to join a group or learn more about a group. You can do that uh, just by going to that page on the website, tgcparkslope.com slash Colossians. That's it. So now I want to invite the teaching text. Our teaching text this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as, it ha just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, 
and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. As I was looking at this this week, I saw this um, invitation in this, in this prayer to, to spontaneous gratitude, which I think is a real gift in the world. And um, I, I was able to lay it against some of my experiences this week, which is like I just all of a sudden feel really angry or really frustrated and can't really pinpoint exactly why. Uh, one of the reasons uh, where I felt spontaneous misery was I had to go to curriculum night at my son's middle school. Um, and I had to go through literally like the, the day that they go through in, in class. And I was sharing with another parent my, uh, you know, like dislike at going to this. And she was like, don't you care about your kid? And I was like, yeah, kind of. But um, <laughs> I also don't want to go back to middle school ever. Um, but I got there. I sort of put to bed my, my uh, cynicism and frustration. And we went through the day. And in each class, um, the teachers at, at this school that my, my sons are at um, would start the, the class by asking each person to open up their hands, take a deep breath, and then they'd be like, let's go, or let's begin, or whatever. So, and, I was, and, and what it did was like, in spite of all the stuff that was going on in me, it just reminded me for just a second, like I'm a human being and I'm not just a listener, like I'm a full person, I have a soul. Did you remember that this morning? have a soul. Uh, you're, you're complex. Uh, you're not just here to get a few things and get off into your day. Jesus is your life coach style. But um, So I just thought maybe we'd do that like they do in middle school. So put your hands out if you, want, if you don't mind. Take a deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. All right, let's go. Super, super. I mean, no matter what happens now, we've done that, and the sermon might be terrible, um, but just if it starts to get bad, just take another deep breath and remember, like, it's going to be over soon, or not super soon, but it's going to be over. Uh, so this is something to contend with. The, the historical force um, of the early Jesus movement is something that is fascinating to consider wherever you are on the belief spectrum. If you're like all in on Jesus and his claims and you're a follower and you're, you're in, or you're totally skeptical and you think even belief in God is a sign of, of utter foolishness, wherever you are on the belief spectrum, the historical force of the early movement of Jesus is something that's fascinating to, um, to consider. I, I think as a pastor, my, I have a Britney Spears mic on, you know my, my cards are on the table regards to belief. Um, I think the Christian story has significant theological force, meaning I believe that it says true things about God, that as you, you know, plunge into this, the text of the scriptures, as you get involved in a community of Jesus followers, that there is theological force there, that you, you get to know true things about God. I also believe that there is psychological force. I think that the, the message about Jesus and the message about the world that it reveals has powerful truths in there for what it means to be a human being. So I think that the story we're talking about reveals true things about God, reveals true things about what it is to be a human being, how to thrive, how to answer that question that all of us have an answer to, which is essentially like, what is a good life or the good life? You have an answer for that that you're working out of. I think the Christian story speaks to that. But even if you think it doesn't at all, 
We have to contend for intellectual integrity. We have to contend a little bit with the historical force because without debate, the Christian story has historical force. We know that what was thought to be this tiny fringe sect of Judaism, there were other people that came and said they were messiahs and their movements fizzled out. This messiah was crucified by the might and power of the Roman Empire, which would have seemed to signify the end of that sort of fringe movement. And yet instead of it dying out, people who said that they had seen him back from the dead were willing to give their entire lives. Um, they had no framework inside of Judaism for believing that Yahweh would come as a person. And yet these tra- you know, trained rabbis were saying, yes, we saw this Jesus, this Jesus. He he actually is God in, in human form. It's, it's crazy, but we believe it. And it begins to sweep the known world w- within just a few centuries. So no matter what you think about Jesus, something compelling historically was taking hold across the Roman Empire amongst the followers of Jesus. And the Roman Empire, if you do like any study, it wasn't like nice, clean, fertile soil for a spiritual revolution like the one Jesus is bringing. It, there were other things growing in the soil of the Roman Empire before Jesus showed up. So it wasn't like, hey, we're just looking for anything. Oh, you got a Jesus thing? That sounds great. We'll take it. No, there, were, there was a powerful religious forces. There were powerful political military forces. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But the writing of this letter to the Colossian church, this city we don't have a, a, a ton of archaeological evidence for because it was destroyed in an earthquake. Super bummer. Sorry to start out that way. Um, the city was destroyed in the mid-60s, um, uh, you know, after Jesus, not like 1960. Um, and... The writing of this, this letter, we're going to study it from now until Advent. We're going to be doing it in groups, as Josh mentioned. But it represents, and I want you to see this as we start, it represents a significant moment in the movement of Jesus as the movement of Jesus as a historical force is sweeping the Roman Empire. Mainly because this type of life, this type of relationship, the things that it says about who God is and the things that it says about what it means to be a human being were beginning to take root in these tight-knit communities and these different cities in the Roman Empire. But this particular city was a city that no apostle had visited. None of the people who first walked with Jesus in the flesh had visited Colossae. Yeah. That's what we're going to call it. And, and yet this movement is taking off in this city, and Paul, Paul is writing. So just to say a couple of things contextually, we won't have to go here every week, but as we're getting into the beginning of, the, of this letter to the Colossians, we say a few things. The author of this letter, Paul, we know a bit about his story. In Acts chapter 9, we read about his dramatic conversion to the movement of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. He, um, he, he experiences an experience of Jesus revealed, and it totally changes his view of God. It totally changes his view view of the world. Um, I won't get into too much of that, but shortly afterwards, this man, Paul, uh, who literally, his name was changed from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, who we know as the apostle. Shortly after this, he senses a call to take the message of Jesus to non-Jewish people all over the world. Um, this calling is going to cause him to suffer a lot. He gets bit by snakes. He, he gets shipwrecked. He ends up in crazy cities. He ends up in destitute places. He ends up in places of plenty. Um, he writes half the New Testament. Um, he is, uh, his life and the outpouring of God through his life is a big reason that we in 2019 in Brooklyn are in the wake of this movement of Jesus. So powerful stuff flows out of this, this man Paul's life. Um, 
He was totally against Jesus, literally uh, opposing the movement of Jesus, even violently. He was on his way to arrest followers of Jesus and throw them into jail when he encountered the presence of the resurrected Jesus, and it totally changed his life. This man, Paul, is writing this letter, as he does in other places in the New Testament, to encourage this church and the surrounding area. But it's so important to say, and I'm going to... Hopefully, this will become more and more clear. Paul never had been there. John had never been there. Peter had never been there. So Paul's writing. He's never been with this community. He's in prison, most likely in prison in Rome. Uh, you can visit this prison today. A friend of mine was just in Rome a couple of weeks ago. was telling me about visiting the Mamertine prison. You can go to, it's like sort of, if you're on a, on a tour of Rome, they'll probably take you to the Colosseum and then they'll take you to uh, you know, the, these other ruins and then right off to the side is this Mamertine prison where Paul was held or more than likely he wrote this letter. You can learn a lot about the conditions and if you're into this sort of historical side of it, like the Roman historian uh, Sallust uh, writes things about this Mamertine prison, what it would have been like. He says, the Mamertine prison in Rome could have been called the house of darkness. Super place to hang out. Few prisons were as dim, dark, and dirty as the lower chamber Paul occupied. Known in earlier times as the, as the Chulianium uh, dungeon, its neglect, darkness, and stench gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance. So that's where Paul's writing this letter from. So we have Paul, this elite, highly trained Um, successful intellectual and political force of his day. Paul was on the rise uh, as, as, as a rabbi in Judaism. He was on the rise. He had political weight behind. He was allowed to go around arresting people and throw them in jail. He was an intellectual and political force in the world. Not just in Judaism, but he was also a Roman citizen. He was one of those people that you find from time to time that was pulling worlds together. He was doing that even in his life before Jesus, and he especially does it once he comes into the movement of Jesus. Now... This man who was on the rise is in hideous, terrifying conditions. He is in stench. He is literally dependent on other people, friends, family, other followers of Jesus, to bring him his daily sustenance in order to survive. And in that setting, he gets news about this new congregation that he hadn't started, that none of the other apostles had started, that was in this city, Colossae, and he decides to write a letter to them. How does he get the news? A man visited Paul. Maybe this guy shows up in Rome. He's like, I gotta tell this, I'm here on business, but I'm from Colossae, and I've gotta tell this man, Paul, what's been going on there. We've been talking about this person, Jesus, and it's been crazy. People aren't just hearing about it and moving mental furniture around in their brains. They're encountering the person of Jesus in some, some powerful way that is changing their lives and setting them free and reorienting them in a new way to life in this empire. And I have to get in and tell Paul. And they're like, well, listen, we take stuff into him every day. You can be the person today who takes it into Paul. Bring him the bread. Bring him the food. We have these lunchable packets. He loves them. Bring them in and take them, take them and tell him your story. So we have this man, Epaphras, who's mentioned in the first section of the letter. This is a man we don't know a terrible amount about, but apparently he was the person who first shared the message of Jesus with the people in this city, Colossae. Um, they, they, they had not just heard information, right, but they had an encounter with this Jesus, and now a community was gathering around the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, like we're, we're calling this series, In Christ, by the Spirit, for the city. It was true in Colossae, it was true in Corinth, it was true in Ephesus, it's true in Brooklyn. In Christ, by the Spirit, for the city. So 
What these New Testament letters are doing is trying to work out all the the real life specific complications of how that actually takes place. So this is an example at least of what we talk about in Trinity Grace a lot, that the kingdom of God is a relational kingdom. So none of the apostles themselves had been to Colossae, and yet this man Epaphras had shared the message of Jesus, and now there was a small community of people huddling together, beginning to follow Jesus in the midst of all these counter-resistant forces going on in that place. The movement of Jesus, hear this, the movement of Jesus moves along relational lines, This is so important. This is so important for all kinds of things. How we understand history, how we learn to pray, what we imagine God has for us as far as participating in his kingdom. It moves along relational lines. That means you can be a representative of God's love to someone and that is absolutely in line with with God's plan for how his kingdom is going to come in the world. God doesn't just show up like, you know, like an airplane with a billboard behind it, like you see at the beach in the summer, like flying behind saying, I'm real, I'm true, I'm here. He doesn't iron man into places and blow people away with miracles. He gives us the privilege, the opportunity, the invitation to participate relationally in his kingdom coming. So a question we get to put to ourselves is, do people know more of what God is actually like by the way we live? Do people know more of what Jesus is actually like by the way we live, by the way we speak, by the way we forgive, by our generosity, by our mercy, by our love, by our pushing back on racism, by by our kindness, by by our our holding to truth in the midst of a a confused world that that, that latches to so many different um, versions of reality? The kingdom is a relational kingdom, and this man, Epaphras, had walked into Colossae and had shared the message of Jesus and had changed things. When we say this relational kingdom, we talk about this all the time at Trinity Grace, but that that God is somehow, that the Yahweh of Israel is somehow Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's somehow a community of relationship in the very being of God. So when you say God is love, you can literally mean God is love in his very nature. God shares love and defers and moves out to the other and, and is not just centralized power, but is relationship. That Yahweh, that God spilling over in relationship into the world is the movement of the kingdom of God and it has implications for what we think and and how we live how we believe so this relational sharing of God sharing himself is the good news of how God is repairing and redeeming the world and the circumstances of this letter basically show this all this to say it was working it was working the relational kingdom was growing, and it wasn't like just the people who, who had the name, who had the clout, who had the power, who had been there in the beginning uh, were able to, 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 to move it forward. Literally, this man Epaphras, who we know nothing about, just walks into this, into this city and shares the message of Jesus, and, and it, it works. People begin to believe. People begin to be the same. Like, like, literally, there's a bunch of moments in the New Testament where people are like, it's really working? Let's go send someone to see if it's really working. Oh, my gosh, it's really working. Jen? Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit. Can you believe it? Impossible. No, go check it out. They saw, and this is happening. Have you ever had a friend write a book? I've had a few friends who've written a book, and then they wander into a bookstore in another city that's not their own, and they're like, they see the book on the shelf, and they're like, it's really working. Here it is. I can't believe, like, it's, it's here, like, this, the mechanisms and, you know, the publisher, and now it's here. Like, it's this, I wrote this, and now here it is, on, and I'm not even in my town. This is, 
I, I see this with my kids, the same reality, right? You're working with them. You're trying to help them understand reality. You're trying to help them not be selfish beasts. And then you hear them say something in the right moment, like once, you know, every now and then they say something exactly right in the right moment. You see them respond with grace. You see them take words that you've put in their mouth and use them the right way. And you're like, it's working. It's working. And then like the next minute happens, you're like, okay, it's not working. That's Okay. Jesus' disciples had moments like this, right? They, they're, like, they're like, can you imagine being a, a part of that intimate group that saw Jesus moving through the world? Like he's talking about this is what the kingdom of God is like. But then like, hey, see. This person sees. Hey, be free from this thing that is tormenting you. This person is set free. Hey, have enough to eat. Hey, be brought into community. And, and then he sends them out. He's like, you know all the stuff I've been doing? I want you to go do it. And they're like, Wow. Can we have a friend together? Go two by two, okay? So they go out together, and then they come back, and what do they say? It's working. You can't believe it. We're praying for people the way you're praying for people, and it's working like the relational kingdom is happening in their sea. And that's what's going on as Paul is sitting in this dank, dark dungeon in Rome, and he hears this message from Epaphras that, yes, it's working, the person of Jesus is taking root in the lives of these people in Colossae and their lives are being utterly changed. Their generosity is off the, off the, you should see how they're demonstrating faith and hope and love with one another. And Paul begins in that dark place to exhibit this exuberance that he pours out onto the page that is this letter to the Colossian church. He doesn't know them. When he writes to the Cor Corinthian church that he hung out with a bunch, he's like, tell Sam to stop sleeping with his mother-in-law. It's like very specific stuff. He's getting into their sexual ethic. He's like, there's some brokenness amongst you, and he's identifying specific people, not anyone named Sam. I made that up. But he, he, to the Colossians, he doesn't know them personally, but he's writing to push back on some of the empire forces that would have been at work to tamp down and break apart their faith. He's writing to push back on some of the, the, the actually the, they seem to be facing some false teaching that had some um, elements of angel worship and mysticism involved in it that we don't know, it's hard to pin down exactly what, but he's pushing back on some things that would have come to break down the truth of the gospel for them. So he's writing to say, to sort of like the, the fire is there to breathe on it and say, live Go, continue, let this relational king, kingdom continue to move forward. And so Paul's writing this letter to push back against these fine-sounding arguments, to push back against the realities of the Roman Empire. And because we're doing some context work here that we won't have to do every week, I just wanna give you a little picture of what the Roman Empire is at this time, not for a history lesson, but so that hopefully we can find some dynamic equivalents in our own time. But I'll give you four sort of, and if you wanna read about this in more detail, um, there's a book called Colossians Remixed, which does a lot of work of unpacking the context of this particular letter. But I'll just give you four things that show up um, in the reality of the Roman Empire. One is that this was a time where power, political and military power, was as centralized in the history of the world as it has ha ever been in, in many, 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 many years. And so the Roman Empire had swept the world and conquered the world. And so you have power centralized in, in Rome and in its empire stretching across the world. So in each of these cases, you're going to see there's like they set it by, by conquering the world and then they reinforce it with something. So set and reinforce. You'll see it in these, these realities. So they began to establish norms. They had economic, social, and military control of the areas that they had conquered. This is how they, they reinforced. So 
Rome, when they conquered a place, they didn't just try to hold on to it militarily and wait for the next you know, hordes to come and, and, and drive them back. They said, we're gonna make this conquered land profitable. We're gonna, we're gonna build it into the network of our empire. So they established their power and then they established social, social economic, and military norms in a place. As you look at the background of Jesus walking in first century Israel, you see this reality at place, right? There's Pilate, there's his forces, there's, there's, there's Caesar, there's this reality imprinted over everything. That was true in every area where Rome had conquered. So they have power, they have norms, but they don't just, they're not just flexing their might, they're also flexing their intellectual muscle. They're, they're telling stories, powerful myths that gave framework to this world that they were building. What, what you might have remembered from your history class is the, the Pax Romana, basically like, we don't just wanna conquer you, we want you to feel like it's your privilege to be conquered. We don't just wanna dominate you militarily and, and tax you and have you a part of, of our map that we're, that we're drawing of the world, but we, want you, we also want you to be grateful that we did it because, hey, at least no more wars. We're in charge now. There's no one as strong as us, so you can, you can be, as long as you don't mess with us, you can know that you have peace, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, right? A, a powerful uh, myth, a powerful narrative framework for how to uh, keep the world under your thumb in a very, in a very direct way. I, I want you to be glad to be conquered. And then they had images. So they set it and then they reinforced it. They had images. These are daily claims on the imagination. This is how the power of Rome was reinforced. They had coins with Caesar's face on it. Or they had statues that depicted Roman battles. That when you went out for entertainment, it was let's go down to this little mini Colosseum or whatever and see a, a, a demonstration of a Roman victory, right? And, and this is how our, their, their imaginations were captured through coins and statues, other art and architecture. So we have power and culture and stories and images. And you start to think, okay, what are ours? Where do we centralize power? Where do we look to for influence? What are our cultural norms? What are the stories that we're regularly telling ourselves? How are, do you see any images around that are meant to capture your imagination? <laughs> right, we have to grapple as Americans with how we tell our own story. There are crucial aspects, of course, that if you leave them out, right, just leaving one part of the story out really distorts how, how you tell the story. Some of you might be familiar with this, but in Times Square recently, there was a, um, a piece of art unveiled it's a sculpture by the artist Kehinde Wiley. The statue is called Rumors of War. Has anybody seen this? Know what I'm talking about? A couple, one, thank you. Thank you for being here. Great, well I'm gonna get to tell you about it. I should have put a picture in there. I thought, I thought more people would have known about it. But um, basically, he is an African American artist. Um, he was visiting Virginia on an art research um, project and he, he was uh, experiencing enrichment, seeing these um, statues to Confederate soldiers. You can imagine seeing that and, and what that does to your heart and mind to see an image like that. And he talked about the powerful, like straining muscular horse and the soldier on, on, on top, this Confederate general straining and looking back sort of like with, you know, like piercing eyes and, and this like glorious picture, you know, in, in, in bronze in, in front of him. So the statue that he's made is basically that exact thing. It's a, it's a powerful horse and a young man sitting on top and he's turning around, but it's an African-American an, an African man. He's wearing Nikes, he has a hoodie on, he has, he has dreadlocks. And he's saying we have to totally reimagine how we're telling the story of our country. And art has that powerful stop sign, its ability to say, hang on a minute, 
Let's reflect for just a minute on what this says. Let's reflect, reflect for just a minute on the story that we're telling, right? When we look at a piece of art, we should say, what, 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 what story is this inviting me into? What story is this, is this telling me? It's a powerful, subversive work in the world to say, hey, we've been telling the story a certain way and it's not sufficient. Check it out, check out the, 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 the statue Rumors of war, it's in Times Square for the next amount of time, I don't know exactly how long, but then it's gonna be moved down to Richmond, which I think is pretty powerful. What captures our imagination? What are our, our what, what, where do we look for as sources of power? What are our norms? What, what, what stories are we telling ourselves? What are the images that we're daily ingesting? Because let me tell you something. If you just go out trying to follow Jesus like the world's a blank canvas and it's just as likely to work out that you will follow Jesus as you won't, you'll be radically disappointed and broken into pieces because there are powerful forces of empire at work in, in Colossae and there are powerful forces of empire at work in Brooklyn. <laughs> there are powerful forces of empire at work in our world and I'm not trying, I'm not trying just to, to uh, you know, turn the volume up on our political divide in this particular time but if you try to follow Jesus and you don't pay attention to the stage of life that you're in, <laughs> the trauma that you have experienced, the trauma that your culture has experienced, is the stories that we're telling ourselves, the, in, the images that we ingest on a regular basis. If you think you're out there painting on a neutral canvas, you are in for massive disappointment. You're like, I don't know why I can sort of not really stomach, you know, get the energy up to come to church but once a month. Like, I kind of like want to get more involved but the idea of a life group just seems like way too much. Like, why am I commitment fomit? Why am I radically autonomous? What's up with my individualism? What's up with my consumerism? Where did this come from? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Well, you live in a world and that world has power and norms and stories and images that are after your mind and heart. They're after your hard-earned dollars. They're after your profit margins. They're also after, I'm sorry to say, your soul. Remember you have a soul? <sighs> Paul's in a Roman jail. He's thrilled to hear about this movement of Jesus, this kingdom that's growing relationally. He's writing to help this new church face this false teaching that they're dealing with, this powerful cultural realities of the Roman Empire to help them grasp the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And basically he does two things in the first 14 verses, which are our teaching text. I promise we won't have this long of introduction for every, every week. We're just laying the groundwork. You guys get it. He's doing two main things. He's saying, I'm so thankful for what's happening amongst you. And then he's interceding for them. He's basically like, I'm asking God for some things for you. I wanna tell you what I've been asking. When I read this, sometimes I, I wanted to say, say this like, I put, I'm trying to, it's like, really hard to put yourself in Paul's exact scenario, but like imagine hearing from Epaphras and beginning to imagine this church in Colossae and imagine the things they're wrestling with and knowing the force of the Roman Empire, you're literally imprisoned by that very force. And what do you think is gonna, what can you do from where you are, chained up, having to have people bring you food on a daily basis, that's gonna make one ounce of difference in that city that's far away? Literally, what can you do at all? I think, I, my first thing would have been like, yeah, write a letter explain to them a bunch of stuff, tell them how, you know, how it worked in other places. Like, and I would have written a much longer letter, as you guys know from my preaching style. But Paul, apparently what he does is begin immediately praying for them all the time. He believes somehow that this mystical work of talking to God in his dank, dark prison cell is gonna have as much impact, if not more, than the letter he's writing. And when he finally does write the letter, he says, this is what I've been 
thinking about. No, this is what I've been praying for you. This is what I've been interceding at the throne of God on your behalf because you know what? You can chain me up, but you cannot stop my, my, the power of my intercession. And Paul's like, I can remake the world from a prison cell because of the power of intercession. What? So can you from your desk at work? Absolutely. Can you from the little quiet place in your living room before you go catch the F train? Can you at the end of the night in front of your kid's triple bunk bed because there's not enough space in your apartment as you pray for them? Can you remake the world on your knees? Absolutely. Maybe you'll never write a letter like Paul, but you can intercede like him, and he literally gives you the words. So he says, I'm thankful, and I'm asking God for things. So the first is the thankful part. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is the stuff that gets Paul going in the morning in his cell. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored from you, for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. When you read verse six, I want you to hear, it's working! It's working. This same thing is, is, is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who Paul probably didn't know. This guy brought me bread. He told me a crazy story. Who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of what? Your love in the spirit. I, I love that. You're looking for a true mark of Christian community. How do you know it's working? Love in the spirit. Like there's a community and they're demonstrating the resources for taking care of one another, for loving one another, for moving out towards the other person in a way that seems to be beyond human resources. They're loving one another so well that it's obvious an entirely new story has begun to take root in their soul, in their life, in their relationships. This relational God has spilled over. What's the true marker? Jesus said the true marker is, you'll know they're my disciples by, by how you speak on CNN about me. You'll know, you'll know that they're my disciples by how they sell books. But you'll know they're my disciples by how they put on some of the best conferences and how their music, though not great, sounds like a lot of, of good rock. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some of the time my cynicism seeps out and you, you see that and you receive it in grace. I appreciate that. They'll know you're my disciples by their love. Their love by, by how you love one another, by how you truly seek the best for the other, that will be the defining reality of how you'll know Jesus has taken root in a place. How you know it's working in Colossae is they love one another and it's by something more than just human resources. They love one another supernaturally by the Spirit. Then there are pillars that show up. They show up in Corinth, they show up in Colossae. Faith and love and hope, or in, in, in Corinth, it's like faith, hope, and love. Paul, I don't know why he switches it here. He's like, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love pouring out of this hope. Basically, when he thanks God, he's like, I know it's real. I know this relational kingdom is spilt over. I know these people have been apprehended by the, the incredible love of Jesus because they're loving one another 
They're acting in faith against the power of their own, their own selfishness, against the power of the empire. And they, they're, they're resourced by this hope that seems to be perpetually renewing. How, how, are, they, how are they living? And so what, essentially the first part of the, the, the thanking God piece is basically there's a life that flows out of taking the true message of the gospel into your heart, in, into your life, into your imagination, into your commitment structure, into your motivations that has to flow out, right? This is the message for us to, right? We're not just those who hear about the gospel. We're not just a sermon hearing club. We're those who are trying to, to exhibit love in the spirit, to hold on to these anchors of faith, hope, and love. The true message of the gospel always results in a life The second thing is he says, I'm asking for some things for you. Paul in prison, imagining how on earth can I help? And he prays first and he prays a lot and then he writes to tell him what he's prayed and to give a few pieces of counsel. This is the prayer. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with what? What is he gonna ask God for? To fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, same Spirit that gave love, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that what? So that you might have endurance, great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's a pretty good prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a prayer for fullness. As you'll see next week, it's a prayer that they could live in new creation. Paul's gonna start unpacking like, this is what creation looks like, this is what new creation looks like. This is the world as it really is, this is the world as it's being redeemed. And he's praying for them to experience a life of fullness in the movement of Jesus, in the reality of new creation. And I want you to know this prayer has a bearing on your life and you can pray it. You can literally take these exact words for yourself, for your, for your children, for your family, for your friends, for your, for, for, for your world. You can pray this. So I'm just gonna literally give you right off the top the things he prays. The first thing is I pray that you would know what God wants. This is a symbol of intimacy in any relationship is that you come to know what the other person wants. Right, You come after, after so many years of friendship or so many years of being married to someone or so many years of working with a kid where you're like, I know what they're gonna want in this situation. Right, That's a symbol of intimacy. It's a symbol that you're beginning to know the heart of the person. You're beginning to realize they're not just a, a physical body. They have a soul. Ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding. What does this mean? It's a gift of intimacy, but it's also a gift of practicality. It's that you would know what God wants in a given specific situation in Brooklyn in 2019. That they would know in 64 or whatever they're in, in, in after Christ's birth, in, in, in this city, in the Roman Empire. That all the things we say and believe about God would be pulled down through discernment into understanding what to do in a particular moment. Wouldn't that be something? To know what God wants understanding the spirit gives. The second thing he prays for is I pray that you would live how Jesus lives. 
that you would live how Christ lives, that you would live a life worthy of the Lord. And sometimes, right, we get this Christian language stuff and we think worthy, that's only a word that you even say in worship songs. What on earth does that mean? But basically that you would live a life that would reflect the real character of Jesus, right? This is the smelly, what would you Jesus do bracelet? But like, what would Jesus do if he were you in your setting and circumstances in reality? How would Jesus live? To live a life in the intricacies of those circumstances just like Christ would. How on earth would you do that? Well, we'd probably have to go back to number one and begin to learn what God wants and then live how Christ lives. And then he says, and the, and the, re, the reality of that is you'll begin to bear kingdom-type fruit, relational kingdom-type fruit. There'll be one, one piece of fruit will be that your inner life begins to change. When you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? These are character realities that begin to be true of you by the Spirit. So this becomes true in, in intimacy in your life, but also relationally. Right? There's fruit of generosity. There's fruit of someone being brought into the kingdom because of the way you live your life. There's, there's fruit of justice being done, mercy being shown. So bearing fruit, every, every type of good work and also knowledge. There's an inhale and exhale reality to life in the kingdom, to the type of fruit that we're looking for. One of the things we're, we're doing as a church, we're asking every, everyone in our church to find a group to follow Jesus with. We're asking every group to, to move through this letter with us. One of the things this letter does is lift up Jesus. It's got some of the best prayers. Literally, some of the stuff that was in this letter was taken out or it already was like songs of praise. So we, we have for you, Every day, every week, a daily spiritual practice that goes along with this study of Colossians that you can do to begin to bear the fruit of the kingdom. We're gonna all be doing it together. And then we have a love and action practice. And, and we're gonna process these in our life groups and in our prayer groups and in our, in our groups all across the city. But I wanna mention them to you now that every single season of our church's life ongoing, we're going to have an inhale practice and an exhale practice that we're trying. Now, the ones for this, for, this, for this series are to spend time daily with Jesus, specifically to read a little bit of the Gospels every day, a daily spiritual practice. If you already read the lectionary or, or a Bible in a year, you already have a Gospel reading that's set up for you, but I'm inviting everyone in our church to meditate on Jesus every day by spending a little bit of time in the Gospels. And our and our love and action piece is to take small risks to, to say something about that. Not that you're reading the Bible every day, but love and action to share the message of Jesus like Epaphras did with the Colossian church, to, to do that in your setting. Maybe it's all you could possibly muster is to, is to shyly mention Alpha, and that's a great start. But maybe some of you will be, you'll have a friendship that you're like, it's finally time for me to be honest about my faith journey with this person. And even though like it feels weird and embarrassing and I, I don't wanna be seen like I'm proselytizing this person, but I gotta be honest about how I've experienced the love of God. So our inhale practice for this fall season before we get to Advent is to spend time every day with Jesus in the Gospels and the exhale is to share the person of Jesus in conversation with someone. So I think that means we're gonna talk about it a lot more, but, but praying for a couple of specific people in your life that you would love to have the opportunity to have a meaningful conversation about your faith with. Because Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know what God wants, that you would live how Jesus lives, and that you would bear fruit in intimacy and action. And if you do that, guess what? Life's not gonna just all of a sudden become easy. So the next part of the prayer is that they would be made strong to endure. 
they would have great patience and great endurance, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might because it's not easy out there because the struggle is very, very real. And the last thing he mentions is that they would have redemption joy. It's in one of this like most amazing sentences in the whole New Testament. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who is qualified. This is your identity, church. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Pause for a second. That Jesus treats every one of you like a firstborn beloved child. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness from our own selfishness and from the empire and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have what? Redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Man, that's such a prayer. He's like, I want this to produce spontaneous gratitude in you. That's part of the full life, right? I have these moments of spontaneous misery, anger, frustration, stress. What do I do? I gotta remind myself of my identity. I gotta not just listen to myself. I have to speak the message of hope, the gospel to my own heart that I'm brought in, that I'm treated by the God of the universe like a beloved child, firstborn child brought in and given an inheritance. So what do we do? We have the Apostle Paul writing from jail, saying, I've been praying for you. I'm so thankful for what God's doing. I wanna invite you into that rhythm to, to literally, as you move through your life, what are the things that you... Not what you should be thankful for. What are you legitimately thankful for? And use that as a starting place. Like what gets you excited about going through your life? What are you legitimately thankful for? And then move on to the next part, which is to intercede, to begin asking God to, to, to change realities in our world that need to be changed. To, that you can actually, if Paul can make a new world from this jail cell by prayer, you can make a new world as well. I didn't even have time to get into the... The freedom from Egypt part of, 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 of Paul's prayer, it's in there. Speaking of being made free from, from another empire, but I wanna invite you into a season of thankfulness and interceding. Second thing, super practically, is find a group to follow Jesus with. I don't care, like, really. It's like, how many people that come on Sunday are participating in a life group? Let's talk about percentages. Like, on one level, I don't care about that at all. But if you are trying to follow Jesus alone, you're gonna fall apart. And if, you want, if we want to, to even demonstrate the true fruit that Paul's talking about, we have to do it together. You need to find a group to follow. And if it's not a traditional life group like we're offering or a prayer group like we're offering, find a group of friends and get together around a table. We've made a whole guide for you that you can go through with a few people and, and sort of try to wring this letter out and drink the living water that comes from it. Be nourished by the bread. Pick your metaphor. Find a group to follow Jesus with. If you never have, this is the time. And I wanna invite you to take this prayer into your soul. 9 through 14 is one of the most beautiful, the next section, my goodness, the next section about Jesus is incredible, but this is one of the most powerful prayers in the whole New Testament. Know what God wants, live like Jesus lives, bear fruit, endure, have joy. I want you to take this prayer, fold it up in a little card in your purse or your wallet and pray it, just pray it. Use the words, get it into your, into your soul. Some of you have a picture of God who's kind of grumpy and keeping score and very frustrated. 
The God of, of this letter, the God that's keeping Paul going in that dank, dark, dusty cell, having people having to bring him literally sustenance to live, the thing that's making him pour out joy is that he knows the true heart of the Father God who wants you to abound, who wants you to live in a life of abundance, right? Not, not the way like our culture markets abundance to us, but in true soul level, love level, life level abundance. We have a jo- I want you to know we have a joyful God who longs for your life to represent that same joy, even though he's not naive about what life is really like. This letter is gonna keep unpacking that for us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would continually fill each of us with the knowledge of your will, with wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives. I pray in the name of Jesus you would help us to live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing in every way. I pray you would help us to bear fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of you, God. In the name of Jesus, may we be strengthened with your power according to your glorious might. May we have endurance and patience. God, we need it. Help us to be those who give joyful thanks, who know our identity, that we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of of your holy people in the kingdom of light. You, God, have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and we celebrate. You brought us into the kingdom of the son you love. May that be pressed into our very identity at the deepest level. In you we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Make this true in us, God, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.